0: Hi, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this episode is a journalist and now documentary filmmaker. Thomas McIntosh works at BBC London and fronted the recently published documentary Who Stole Tamara Eccleston's Diamonds? which focused on the diamond heist of the daughter of former Formula One supremo Bernie Eccleston, Tamara Eccleston, from her West London home, and who was allegedly behind it. Myself and Thomas connected initially whilst I worked for the NHS, and Thomas covered the impact of the second COVID-19 wave in the trust I worked for at the time a couple of years ago, Bart's Health. Since then, Thomas has covered largely crime stories, including Tamara's Diamond Heist, and including murders and their murder trials that have taken place across the capital, including the murder of Sever Everard by a metropolitan police officer. In this episode, we discuss how Thomas broke into the journalism industry and the barriers he had to overcome, including a bad set of A-level results, the stress that comes from covering the stories he does, and the documentary about Tamara Eccleston's Diamond Heist too. For Thomas's mental health, we talk about the isolation and loneliness that living in London can bring about in people, therapy he has accessed in the past because of issues he's had in previous relationships, and how he's now recovered in a great place with a supportive partner and wider support network. So this is how my check-in with Thomas McIntosh went. Thomas McIntosh, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you, mate. You always seem like quite a busy bee nowadays, you're either doing documentaries or you're doing BBC London or you're roving about. So how are you, mate? How are you getting on?
1: Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. Good to see and hear from you. Yeah, doing really well. Keeping keep it incredibly busy. It's been one heck of a year of news. It's just been one thing after another. I mean, only feels like yesterday that Chris had resigned and I mean, that was February time. Uh, we've only just got over the pandemic. Well, I say over the pandemic, it's still ongoing and incapacity but you know it's been an incredibly hectic three years or so and it doesn't show any signs of slowing down unfortunately but no I like to keep myself busy it certainly helps with my mental health is uh, always keeping busy if I'm doing nothing then I'm kind of worrying about why I'm doing nothing.
0: I'm exactly the same mate we originally connected through a very emotionally significant story in a very significant moment in history when I was working in the NHS but I'm glad we can actually get to chat about your whole journey today and put the focus on you so without further ado are you ready to start the show mate?
1: Yeah go for it crack on.
0: Let's start your podcast mate by talking about your journalism journey so first off I ask all my special guests who are journalists this question tell me how and why you got into the industry where your love for storytelling or writing or producing came about and the journey to where you are today?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think one word that can sum it up is being nosy. <laughs> I was always in, inquisitive and intrigued from a young age as to what was going on in the world. Initially, I wanted to be an air traffic controller or a pilot, so something to work in the aviation. I found fascinating and I was growing up as a kid, but unfortunately I had to be good at maths and physics, two subjects which I was not Engaged with at school to get the grade shall I say and I just remember stumbling across you know I used to deliver my local paper in Aberdeen Evening Express always sort of engaged with it really enjoyed it and then wrote to the editors to see if they could take me on some work experience did a week there really enjoyed it that became two weeks and then all of a sudden I was giving up all my sort of weekends and my school holidays to go in and work alongside for free, alongside these journalists and that sort of really gave me a bug to want to be a journalist. Advice that I took from the editor at the time was to sort of go away, go to university. Went to university but had a bit of knockbacks because I failed most of my exams at school apart from drama. I can come on to that a little bit later, that was definitely a bit of a setback in terms of what happens next and that sort of career junction or life junction to so to speak but because I failed those exam results fact I can crack on and tell you basically because it was 2011 and the Scottish government the Scottish government is different from how they get their exam results from down here in England. So in England, my understanding is that you guys go to a school, get your results, open up an envelope, and you're there amongst peers, amongst Correct. teachers. And that's how you get it. In Scotland, it's not. It's totally different. You get your letter posted through the letterbox. So the Scottish government tried this new thing, texting the results out, and by mistake, they sent a couple of hundred people their results early, and I was one of the hundred people who got my results early. Remember, I just got off a flight put my phone back on non airplane mode and got my results, told my dad that I'd failed and he was fuming. Absolute furious. Barely spoke to me. But what it did do is it gave me a lot of processing time and thinking time about what to do next. Put me right at the front of the queue of clearing. Obviously that system still works across the whole board of, of the UK. Another thing that was sort of really off putting was sort of at that time the tuition fees had started to come in down in England. So it it really limited opportunities to go to university away from Aberdeen which is where I grew up so really to only in Scotland so because of that I managed to get a university place at a, at a place called University of West of Scotland which at the time was one of the lowest ranked universities on UCAS but I did a journalism degree I'd actually already been for an interview but I knocked it back in favour of another two which then knocked me back so I basically re-picked up my pace in clearing went to do journalism for four years there at the best time of my life I was absolutely sensational met my friends for life and then from that I've sort of met people who have basically sort of knocked me onto my career so there was a girlfriend I had at the time who went to Stirling University and she went to do a course in Newcastle with the press association or she had a talk she told me about it and then I ended up getting a six-month Journalism course after I finished my degree, and that basically prepped you for a journalist in England. So the law is different, the government is different, as I just said, the education system is different. Although it's all one UK, it was quite a bit of baptism fire, just how different things are between the borders. But that was like a six, you know, six month intense course. learn all your shorthands the real basics, and it was the same sort of courses that Andrew Marr went on, Tom Newton Dunn, to, to name just a few. So, you know, it was a really appealing course, and they had a 96% success rate for employment. So it just seemed like an absolute shoe in to get into the industry. Did the course, got offered a couple of jobs in Croydon, Crawley, Slough, Grimsby and Aberdeen. I didn't want to go back to Aberdeen. I loved living away, loved living away from home, and decided to go down to Crawley. Worked in the Crawley News for a bit, then the Croydon Advertiser, which was, again, brilliant patch to work on both of them were really good and again totally different from Aberdeen and then I got a job with the BBC in November 2017 and since then I've been working all over the world on stints in the US on trips to the US trips to Belgrade and worked on loads of projects so it's it's been one heck of a journey don't get me wrong but I do always look back and I think the one event that really shaped it was me failing my results but not advocating that everybody fails their results because it's definitely not not the way to go but there are ways that you can bounce back and I think that's always been at the back of my mind for my work ethic that's pushed me on to do what I do now is in order to get places you do have to work hard because when I was a kid academically I was good I was smart enough but I would never push myself so 50 percent, 40 percent passes would be fine by my head but obviously it wasn't enough to make the grades for universities but Yeah, that's that's probably how my sort of journey of journalism, so to speak, got me in.
0: So, before we talk about BBC London in more depth, just going back to that pivotal moment of your A levels, do you think that without it, you'd have the work ethic you have today? Despite the fact it was such a negative initial moment because of the fact that you failed,
1: it's difficult to say. But I definitely think that really it really shaped my work ethic. Now, who's to know that it might have changed? Because what it did was it meant i had to i had to move away from home so you had to live for yourself you had to care for yourself so these are you know life skills not just univer you know university's great for the academic side of things but it also teach you lo- taught me loads of life skills how to cook how to clean how to budget so you could go out spend your student loan going on a night out in glasgow and roll in at 4 in the morning spend 200 pounds but that 200 pounds is your clothes your food everything So it was kind of a bit of everything, really. And if I had that, you know, if I stayed in Aberdeen, stayed at home, who knows what would have happened. I've always had the mindset of everything happens for a reason, and you meet people for a reason. It might only be a couple of moments, couple of minutes, couple of days, hours, years, and sort of that peak and trough of friendships and acquaintances can really shape who you are. So I do look back. It was a huge turning point for me, and you kind of roll with the cars that you've got. There's no point crying back to... UCAS or schools or SQA boards or whatever. The fact is, you fail and you didn't get it, and it's not a great feeling at all. It's a horrible feeling to fail, no matter if it's in a sporting environment or school or anything at all. So it's 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 how you bounce back from that failure. And sort of to me, it was basically to you know proved my dad, proved my parents, friends at school at the time that this is the journey that I'm going to go down. So now I like to look back. At, I always look back at where I've come from. 16 year old me would love to have been living and working in London, and that's exactly what I'm doing. So, probably quite proud of myself if I was to look back at 16 year old me now, if that makes sense.
0: When we come to BBC London, the story that connected us was when you came to the Royal London to report on the second COVID 19 wave and how it impacted the area. It's my hometown. I joined the NHS about a month before we did that story as well from the BBC. So, that was the first time I'd ever been on a COVID ward. And I think the memories of that day will forever, never leave me. Are those the types of stories that stay with you as a journalist too?
1: 100%, not even just a journalist, just a person. So all in all, I did six COVID wards during the pandemic across definitely two waves we've had. Remember, you know, it's been so, it's <laughs> all blurred. Into one. It's probably like
0: four waves since, there's probably been like four oh, waves oh, in I, total. I, I, yeah. The first
1: one really stands on my mind because it was such... COVID was such a you know, a weird time and incredibly weird for journalists too because I was in the newsroom when it was all happening. When all of a sudden you had this, you know, Brexit just happens. Sajid Javid had just resigned from government as chancellor. Those were the big stories at the time. And then all of a sudden this virus was coming out of China and then Italy was in a lockdown and then Spain was in a lockdown. And then at the same time, I think it was the same day that Italy went into lockdown, a quarter of a million people were at the Cheltenham Race Festival. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge big boom of COVID cases in Cheltenham Festival, a huge big boom in Liverpool because loads of Spanish people. I went to that game at Anfield in Liverpool, and all of a sudden, you just sort of see this thing of joining the dots. And news just changed. News just changed. You used to be able to have to do all, you know, as much as your, your TV interviews tried to do them in person, and now all of a sudden, it was done over by Zoom programs were pieced together by zoom everyone was given laptops all of a sudden and told to work from home london was quiet it was dead you know i'd go walking out into piccadilly circus and i'd be, be the only person there at two o'clock in the afternoon it was mental absolutely mental but it was a huge big sort of reset moment for me of uh, just life when you where i was personally professionally as well so again it was like that sort of sink or swim mentality so as a journalist what's my job what do i want to do is i want to tell stories And I've always been of the mantra that if you want to tell the story, you have to go to the story. So, you know, of course, you could tell the story, it was quiet and the clap for cares and all that kind of thing that was safe. But that sort of extra line of the journalism of putting yourself into a bit of danger, what could you do? So my area at the time, I was living in Wembley, which was northwest London. Brent was the NHS Trust and I had a lot of friends in Harrow at the time. The stats that I was keeping at the time when Public Health England would put out the daily stats, the highest toll that was going up was, was Harrow and Brent, that sort of cluster of Northwest London. So I was just nosy. Why was this happening? Any particular reason. And I got in touch with the Norfolk Park press officer and just said, look, I'd love to do, you know, can you arrange some sort of access? And he explained that the hospital hadn't had the greatest of publicity in, in years gone by and they had to be really careful about letting journalists in and you know, really nationally I mean, it took weeks for journalists to get into hospitals to tell this story. You had all the stuff about the PPE, all the stuff about the care homes, all the stuff about you know the doctors working insane hours, people dying on these wards. And it took weeks for journalists to get in to show what was actually happening. So I wanted to do that in my area at the time in Harrow and, and, and my friends. So it took eight weeks to get into Norfolk Park. And yeah, I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget the day that I went to Bart's. I'll never forget the day I went to Newham. I went to the private hospital in London Bridge, Ealing Hospital I did. It was mental. And again, the thing that I always take home from journalism is you learn something new every day and it gives such a perspective to life. And I would see the work ethic of these, you know, I thought my work ethic was good and then I would see all these consultants and these doctors, you'd have like consultants who, or pediatricians who were exceptionally well-paid, exceptionally intelligent people and their role was to hold an iPad for a loved one of someone who was dying. And that's just what they did for eight hours. One of them always sticks with me was there was a doctor a little bit younger than me, I think. George was his name, curly ginger hair. And he was, again, just a really articulate guy for his age. And he was, he was a junior doctor and he was obviously promoted out to deal with all these things that were on the wards. He said that he pronounced three people dead one night. And in one night messages were still pinging on their phone from a loved one, on their mobile phone someone's watch was still ticking on the Rolex and someone had just put a bookmark in a book. And you have to pronounce these people dead and off you go. And then I met another doctor who was just, you know, how bad is it in this place? And you would be twenty people who were in it and it wouldn't sound like a lot. And then he'd go, Yeah, well that person's gonna die, that person, that bed, and then it'll be you know, as soon as that person died, in came another person. And you just saw the pressures that this, you know, whole thing was under. I went to Bart's, you know, even just touching on you, there was one one nurse who was caring for someone who yeah, wanted to sure. tell her story yeah. wanted to tell her story. So of course we're gonna do that. And she was caring for a patient who was dying. Was touch and go. And then while we were speaking to her, within a couple of minutes, the patient died. And then she went back to go and see him and then came back to finish the interview, tearing up, and then turned around to our line manager and said, Sorry, I'll take this for my lunch break. I'll be back in 20 minutes. And we didn't realize that she was giving up her lunch break to talk to us to tell us to tell the public their story. And it was just all these amazing stories that were coming out of, you know, just how hard-working people were. So, yeah, the perspective, the strength that some of these well, all of these people showed. The thing that I wanted to really do with a lot of these pieces wasn't just to show the staff and the PPE and the nurses, it was all the people that kept the hospital ticking, the porters, the cleaners, You know, all the food that was donated, where did that all go? All that sort of community effort. So it was just such a remarkable time to be alive in and to report on. So I I really saw that as a privilege to be able to go into these places. And then once you had done one story within the NHS, it kind of opened the doors to do others. And then that's how I met yourself, going to Barts. And again, it was just, the numbers were insane. The same disease was affecting people in a totally different way, physically and mentally. Uh, Yeah, nothing could could prepare you for it. Nothing could prepare Hmm. you for it.
0: I want to move on to a very big personal achievement for you, Thomas, which was your recent documentary, Who Stole Tamara Eccleston's Diamonds. So for those who haven't seen the doc, despite its obvious title, A, what did you discover? And B, how big an achievement was the film for you personally and professionally?
1: So it is still the biggest domestic burglary in English legal history. A gang of international jewellery thieves flew over from Italy and they targeted the homes of wealthy people, including Chelsea manager Frank Lampard, or Chelsea manager at the time, Frank Lampard, the deceased Leicester City chairman, Vichai C. Vatana Naprapar, he died in a helicopter crash, and Tamara Eccleston, the daughter of the, the former Formula One boss, Bernie Eccleston. And altogether, they stole £26 million worth of jewellery, goods, cash, You name it, they took so much valuables. But what was really striking about Tamara Eccleston's home is that it was on the richest street in the world, Billionaires Row. It's right opposite Kensington Palace. It has the Russian and the Israeli embassy on it. So, you know, Abramovich had a property there, the Sultan of Brunei, armed guards at each end of the street. So, it's like, how the fuck did this get pulled off? And That's why I decided to go to the court cases to try and find out a little bit more detail about how on earth this got pulled off. And it was just an absolutely staggering story. You know, the characters who were involved, they still haven't managed to catch the main guy. So what I wanted to do is basically tell this story in its sort of whole, you know, as big a context as you could. But unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, unfortunately, the more context that we dug, the more avenues we went down. Essentially, the burglary gang, sort of operated out of this camp in North Milan. So it was nothing like a fancy hat and garden job, that kind of thing. It was just all these quirky characters where you just sort of look back and go, what on earth? And then find out that the guy who's on the run, he's got links to other burglaries across Europe, targeted Patrick Vieira's home in Milan, Suleiman Tari, lots of designers in Milan. So just, yeah, flamboyant cash, goods, and all right, literally a true crime story in the streets of London, it was insane it was absolutely insane and the treatment for the documentary it's not easy to get documentaries put through, you know, not just you know, know, I'm sure not just for the BBC, but for ITV, for Sky for anybody, not only do you have to have the idea you have to have hours upon hours upon hours of footage and you have to be able to sustain an interest for an hour, it's easy putting a live game of football on the TV because people will watch it but nothing happens for 40 minutes The analysis at the end is it's really boring so the whole point of just like trying to get something that's like each frame talks to each frame, it's really tricky. So that was a whole new thing to me of piecing together a documentary. And luckily I worked with guys who have done stuff before on this. I mean, we interviewed 15 people in the end, including Tamara Eccleston, which was I mean, a real privilege to do that. We were the only people that she said yes to an interview with, both really lovely people, her and her husband, both really lovely people, considering what they've been through, considering how private their lives are, considering how, Horrific the crime was for their privacy. And then they were quite happy to talk to us about it and the impact that it had on them. So I think what I really wanted to get across was no matter if you live in the grand house that they did, or you live in a bed sit in Brixton, perhaps, a burglary is a really horrible crime. And no matter what gets stolen, it's that sentimental, personal things that you feel really intruded and it's in your home. So these celebrities, they're in the public eye. And because they're in the public eye, they're a target to some people. So therefore, they have to up their security, close that inner circle of who they trust. And all of a sudden, because they've been burgled, that inner circle gets smaller. So in, in a way, I guess, to ring that off, to be accepted into that inner circle, to tell that story was quite a personal and professional achievement, given the stature um, of what had happened and who these people
0: were. I want to move on to the issues in the industry you wanted to cover, mate. So the first and main one has been the stress that's come with reporting on stories, particularly stories like murder trials, murders as they happen in London. So how have the consistency and nature of these events affected your mental health? Because I believe you also worked on the murder of Sever Everard when it happened as well.
1: I must have been to hundreds of murder trials in the last five years at BBC London. When I was at Croydon Advertiser we had something like 10 or 11 murders in one year. So then once you have those murders you go to the crime scene you find out what happened and then you go to the court cases and then that's 10 11 court trials to happen. It's not just teenagers, it was adults killing adults as well. You see it in court, unfiltered. You see the damage that's caused to someone. In some cases you see the x-rays and something you, know, you get pretty descriptive accounts from pathologists who have to go through the post-mortems. And not to mention some of the witnesses, some of the CCTV, because it all gets put through a jury to make sure that somebody is convicted and off streets for good. So, yeah, I've, I've done loads in London. I did a, a project, 2019, 100 killings, where we decided to sort of track every single murder in the UK to find out if there was a trend, what was pushing it. And so we found the first 100 killings and then went to the first 100 murder trials in the uk so i was in a different city every day over the summer of 2019 and you would just see so many different avenues domestic violence gangs drugs money alcohol fights outside the pub and again those kinds of things I go back to perspective as a journalist is you realize just how short life can be With covid it can go like that it could be anybody it wasn't just old people who were affected by this it was young old fit healthy obese skinny everyone and again in these cases you can see just how quickly life can change Not just for people who are families of people who've been killed but also the families of people who are murderers are on trial is a very incredibly tense time for them to go through the Everards case was again I don't know if I'll ever cover a case like that again that was a whole another level of just unexpected chaos yeah it was chaos i i i, I remember because you know it was, it was lockdown time i just started seeing my girlfriend so you know you couldn't mingle indoors you couldn't go anywhere so what we would do is we'd go for a walk and we'd meet up have a chat have a coffee a we'll shop and then just have a walk and i remember that night it was absolutely pissing it down absolutely pissing it down and the next day you get the report on social media, then the next day the Lambeth police put out an appeal looking for this woman who'd gone missing on the Wednesday, I think it was. And, yeah, it was just like, women don't just go missing, or people just don't go missing. There's always something that's really mysterious about it. And then all of a sudden you know, the search and clapping come in Pond, and then then all of a sudden they've arrested I met a police officer in Kent, and it was just pff, what? Yeah, I was absolutely crazy, so I think what was good about the Press Association case in Newcastle is they prepped you for it. You know, they brought in lots of ex court reporters who had seen some pretty horrible and gruesome things and they told you what to expect. So, from a young age ish, well, maybe 19, you knew that if you're going to court, you were going to hear and see some pretty horrible things. But also, that horrible thing would give you the context in order how to write things, being articulated towards a reader, not even just murders. If you go to, Coverage about the Ukraine war or atrocities that are committed across the world, you expose yourself to some really horrible images, mass graves, bodies. You know, come on to a bit later, but one sticks my mind quite recently the soul stampede. I was covering that. And you see all these images that come up because photographers take photos. And nowadays, with social media, people hold up a phone and they take a photo, they take a video, and they don't have a filter, they put it on Twitter. And then they'll get lots of abuse for putting something that's graphic, but then it's too late for some people. So, yeah, I appreciate I'm going off a bit of a tangent on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I was sort of prepared for it, and I knew what I was getting myself in for. What I've always been really good for is I've always had colleagues that you can speak to who have been through similar aspects, and they'll pull you to one side, make sure you're all right, whether that's just in the office or that's a pint over the table or a coffee or something. It is an open industry. People will talk to one another, even from like other newspapers, other media outlets. I'm quite happy to chat to people. I'm a sociable person and I don't really believe in rivalries and you're from a different person. So I'm not going to tell you what's happened. You're bottling it up to an extent. So just always being open about what you see and what you hear. If people don't want to hear it, then I'll, I'll shut up. But mm. usually they do want to hear what's happening.
0: Well, you said there about being prepared for what you saw to a lot of degrees, but something that I imagine you weren't prepared for is when you were sent out to Chicago in the US to tackle how violent crime is tackled there, shall we say. And in London, obviously, gun crime is a problem, and I'm not going to deny that it's a problem, but it's nowhere near the scale of Chicago because guns are freely available and the Second Amendment is, is in place. So... How did you find Chicago and what were some of the things that you saw? Because what you described to me off air was pretty horrific.
1: Yeah, Chicago was tough. Basically, Chicago came up, not Chicago as a city, but a, science, a an epidemiologist came up with a, a way to tackle violence in Chicago to treat it like a public health model and to treat it at its source. So what was causing violence in Chicago? And it was those issues around broken homes or drugs or feuds between gangs something like that so they would try to stop those feuds they tried to stop you know educate on the drugs and they would try to fix broken homes by getting people who were ex-convicts come in and tell their story basically to try and stabilize things and by doing that they stop the violence from outbreaking and basically what the guy said was usually one act of violence triggers another act and then that's how it counts across yeah, no one wakes up thinking, yeah. no, no one wakes up thinking i'm going to kill someone today or no one's born that way. So it's trying to get into that psych- you know, psychology. Glasgow copied the model in 2002, I think, 2002, 2005. And it worked in Glasgow because Glasgow had a really bad homicide rate at, at the start of the century. And they've managed to level it off, not completely, but they've, they've certainly managed to bring the numbers down. And then there was a lot of talk about Sadiq Khan and City Hall wanting to do new measures. And these were the ideas that were being mooted. Eventually, they have now got this sort of public health model and the violence reduction unit as to what it's called now. But at the time I went to Chicago to go and speak to this scientist to go and find out his work, I ended up going out with gangs accidentally in one point. But yeah, nothing prepared me for the sort of death. So gun crime in London is relatively small, statistically speaking. It is relatively small for the size of the capital. You know, eight point two million people are in Greater London, and I think there's usually about ten or twelve fatal shootings every year. Obviously, guns are used around other places that aren't necessarily murders. Whereas Chicago, it was off the scale. It was hundreds, hundreds of, of fatal shootings. So I went there, and then again, they sort of talk you through all their methods. They take you out with the gangs. They take you out, they call them violence interrupters. They just tell you how it was real and how it was, you know, <laughs> gangs out there. There was one, I got told, who shot a six-year-old twice. They would shoot the kids to get back at their gang rivalries. Lured a kid into a basketball, dropped the basketball down an alleyway, he chased it, and they shot him. So and, and they would just say it bluntly. It's so obviously it's just what happens in their life. I met a fourteen year old who got a gun taken off by the police, so went out with the police one night. And again it was just like, What on earth are they carrying it for? And a lot of it's safety, right? So why is it safety? Why do you need to carry a gun for safety? And again it goes to the sort of American Second Amendment that you mentioned, which is a whole other issue that, you know, I certainly can't solve. But yeah, it was it was just the sheer volume of death that I saw in the people that I spoke to. So when you go on these sort of foreign assignments i probably put too much pressure on myself to deliver to bring something back because it's very rare that certainly bbc london send anyone abroad i think my editor told me that the last person they sent was to switzerland so here was me going to chicago for a week so i wanted to come back i want to come back with loads of people who had spoken to so every single day i was filling up an itinerary of speaking to charities speaking to police officers scientists i spoke to came back with really nice pieces which explained it and I'd like to think in terms of a journalism role it's providing a good bit of fact not opinion, but fact from what would come from, from abroad and could these theories work in London? And it's pleasing to see that yeah, it probably is working in London. It certainly is nowhere near the levels that it was five years ago. But yeah, it was it was a pretty horrible time. You know, I'm used to being in courtrooms with sadly someone being stabbed to death or something, but yeah, to be told about kids being short. He just yeah, he didn't think that was didn't think that was a, was a whole new law of humanity in my eyes. Wasn't prepared for that.
0: Let's reflect on your journalism journey now, Thomas. So first of all, what has been your proudest achievement along it?
1: Um It's probably not one single proudest moment, but it's like a I'm trying to get the word. So journalism carries a bit of a name before it as a profession because of what it's been through, particularly after the phone hacking scandal. And when you're dealing with quite a lot of crime stories or death that was doing in COVID, when you break down that barrier, when they don't see you as a journalist and they see you as a person, and then you keep maintaining that contact with them as a person. So, you know, I recently got engaged a couple of months ago and the amount of messages that I had from people who i purely met, cause I'd sat with them in a courtroom or I'd sat with them at a crime scene or I'd explained something to them on the phone because I knew what the court process was and here they are saying congratulations and all these things. So that's probably my biggest achievement is showing that journalists are good people. They're not there chasing headlines and exclusives and trying to put themselves in front of the camera. It's, It's a good profession when it's used really well. And that's what I've always wanted to get into. I've never gone to journalism for myself. I don't really see myself as sort of a egotistical person that wants to be in front of the camera all the time and exclusives in the newspapers all the time. It's not my game. Of course, I'd love to because it's it's always it's always good on the occasion of one. But I'm much more of a team person, working with people. That's probably my proudest moment is when you see that veil come down. You know, I've had people turn around and tell me that now they know why they pay the TV license fee. And just little moments like that always stick with you and you go, you know, I'm really glad that I emailed this person in the first place, which is a really tough thing to do when someone's been killed, someone's dead, and me as a total stranger who's never met this person or family, can I talk to you, can I broadcast your story to the nation? And to be able to provide confidence to those people that you're not going to screw them over and you're going to do a good job and you're going to stick by them. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good feeling when it sort of all comes towards the end and they sort of realise that, yeah, good people at the end of the day.
0: And as a final question, what has it taught you about yourself?
1: Be open-minded in context and be incredibly grateful for what you've got around you, who you've got around you and how far you've come because you literally do not know what's around the corner. Not even just murders, but say terror attacks that have killed innocent people. I've had to be at those crime scenes, I've had to be, I've sat in those inquests, I've sat in those court trials, and you just see how quickly people can get caught up in it. Cases of like death by dangerous driving. I've seen some really horrible cases of that, and then a a driver who's killed a kid gets two years in prison, and then destroys a family more because they want to see him away for 20 years, 50 years, but they can't because the law says they're really difficult. They're really difficult moments to sort of just explain it's just because it is the law, it's because of how the society works. So the good thing with journalism for me is it takes me to my mind and takes me to all corners of society, the good and the bad. Not just in the UK, but abroad. say touched on the soul Stampede the other day, the war in Ukraine is horrific, the atrocities that are coming out there, the amount of photos that I've seen of mass graves. Obviously, the BBC would put the articles up, you'll see photos of... Police tape and and people around there. We'd never obviously post the the graphic images, but that's not to say that you know, we can't see it as journalists. We can't see it as the BBC or NBC, CNN, Sky, whoever's got it. People are seeing these. You know, so you know, photographers are out there. They're seeing it. Sometimes they feel compelled to take a photo to show it. You know, a lot of people remember that it was a big furor over the there's a Syrian refugee who was found dead on a beach. It's like a mm. three year old boy. Really graphic image. Some people blurred the face, some people didn't. But again, it's those sort of moments of really striking images. So, yeah, no, really grateful for context, really grateful for perspective and also the people that I've met. Some of which have become really good friends, really close friends, really good advice. Some of them are celebrities by name. And they've always they've given me pockets of advice here and there and I'd like to think I've given advice back to when they've asked for it.
0: We've talked all about your journalism journey. Let's go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey now, Thomas. So firstly, I ask all my special guests this question first on this topic. Walk me through early life in Scotland and Aberdeen, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Thomas we meet here? Very good questions. I had a very good
1: upbringing in Aberdeen. Parents were fantastic. The schools were pretty good. It was two state schools, primary school, secondary school. Again, it's different from what it is down in England with secondary, middle schools, private grammar religious free schools it's just too many schools and too many (laughs) years it just goes over my head so in scotland there's just one primary two secondary public school on one side and if you wanted to you've got your state schools i should say for, for translation purposes then your state schools on one side and the private public schools on the other side so i went to a state school yeah it was what it was a couple of characters that were a bit rough couple of characters that weren't and you just sort of mingled and got by i would never sort of say that school defined me there were definitely teachers who i look back at and you know admire i think i keep in touch with like two or three people from school of well, year that i was in was about 150 i think at its peak most of them are still up in aberdeen to be honest so from what i see on social media and again it's just you know it's Sort of life choices that people make. Some people are just delighted and quite happy to live where they grew up and live in Aberdeen or Grimsby or Cardiff or Edinburgh for years. Whereas others, like myself, London's where I wanted to go to. And I'll go back home, and I'll say, "Why? Why do you live in London? Because it's crazily expensive." And you go, "Yeah, it is crazy expensive, but you just meet so many new people, and it's it's the sort of heartbeat, and it's where it's at." So I think because when I was younger, this was the goal that I always set myself: as I wanted to work in London, I wanted to live in London. To say that I'm doing it, and I'd like to think doing it well, you can sort of look back at teenagers and think you've done really well for yourself. I was never a lonely child. I was always very sociable, quite happy to mingle around friendship groups and bounce away and play sport, played football quite a bit. And then I took up hockey at about the age of 16. No idea why, I just decided that I wanted to. And that was sort of another avenue of sport that I would sort of go down. And that became quite a pivotal part of life that I had when I was sort of growing up into teenage into 20 years because I would just join a local club wherever I left so I lived in Aberdeen for 18 years and then Glasgow for four Newcastle for six lived in Surrey and Sussex for a year and a bit and then lived all over London Croydon, Elephant and Castle, Battersea, Wembley all over the place so you're constantly moving friendship circles you're constantly moving your life and your social aspects so what was always a nice steady thing was I could just join a club be my personality, would fit in. I think as you grow older, it's a lot easier to fit into these. And you sort of grow up and you go... When I was like 12, I couldn't really be arsed. The people who judged me just got on with it. The one thing I did have when I was 12, 13, I got diagnosed with alopecia. So my hair was starting to fall out in clumps. My mum was devastated by that, but it didn't bother me at all. school said, you want to put a beanie hat on? I was like, not really, it's just who I am. Of course, more and more and more clumps fell out. Mum got more and more stressed. I'm sure, my dad did too. It didn't bother me at all. I think what always sticks back in my mind is I remember early days when I had it. I was speaking to you know, NHS grampy and there was there was a, uh, a young lass, well same age as me at the time, maybe twelve, and she had a hat on. She pulled it off and her entire head was gone. Her two types of alopecia for people who don't know alopecia totalis, which is I think Matt Lucas is probably the the obvious one to sort of say he has, where your entire hair grows. Grail Port is another one. Or alopecia areata, which is what I had, is where it goes in patches. Again, that probably toughened me up too, just to like accept who I was from a very young age. Again, it didn't define me at all. The more people that you meet growing up for university, work, everything, it's how they know you, and then I'll show old photos of me when I was wearing hair, and they go, I can't believe that you would do this. You'd be unrecognisable or whatever, and it's just life, isn't it? We've all looked and pulled out funny things when we were younger, but yeah, no, I really good upbringing, really good grinding and sort of set me on the path of, of where I went to now.
0: The main part of your mental health journey you wanted to discuss revolves around relationships, Thomas, and a couple previous ones which you've said has provided some difficulties for you. So tell me about the first one which made you access professional help for dealing with it and overcoming it.
1: Yeah, so I had, as if anybody, you go through relationships that again can sort of define how mentally you're feeling at times so one I touched on earlier in the podcast was a girlfriend who I was going with at university who pointed me in the direction of the press association and we ended up moving in together in a flat in Surrey and she got offered a job back in Glasgow she took it she ended up working a lot of night shifts and I ended up working day shifts we barely saw each other barely you know, spoke to each other so just naturally drifted apart and then she broke it off. I was, you know, naturally just didn't see it coming at all, was quite distraught by it. But in the same way, from a sort of grounding that I had from a young age, parents had always said, you know, things happen for a reason. And remember I got a phone, I was in a murder trial at the Old Bailey and got a text saying, Can I, talk, can I call you? I went outside, took the phone call, texted a couple of friends saying they're broken up. I had to go back in complete this murder trial. And then just sort of sat there, and I remember a prosecutor saying something like, you know, sometimes things don't work out, and that's okay. And that wasn't expecting it. it, was, it was, I can't remember what the I think, I think it was a domestic violence case, actually. Was, anyway, I can't remember what the case was. I remember well being in the old bailey and everything as being a blur. But that's always stuck by me, whether that's friendships, relationships, work, you know, people you speak to on the phone. Sometimes things don't work out, and that's okay. So, totally respected her opinion, totally expected what she said. And just had to get on with it, and to get on with it was just focusing on yourself. So quite often I would turn to sport. Hockey With what I do, is i go and speak to people at a hockey club and throw myself into that. So I knew that on a Tuesday or a Wednesday and a Saturday, you'd be training, you'd be playing a match, you've got something to look forward to two times a week. Work keeps you busy. And then, yeah, there was one relationship I had ended up just taking counselling because it was on offer, and I knew that the BBC had a, a format that they would do so. It was sort of around the time in Chicago where just experienced so much emotion and so much negativity so went to go sort of seek that help and it was very good actually to be honest because it threw a lot you know here's me as the journalist asking loads of questions to people and actually here was me getting some really tough questions about myself so again opened my eyes more gave me more context taught me to take some steps back and focus on the things that i had that were going really well
0: you said something to be very interesting off air when it came to this relationship. And it was that you told your colleagues you were accessing the therapy, but not for the relationship. It was for the trauma that you had seen and reported on in Chicago. Why did you do that? Were you embarrassed, perhaps, to be accessing it for relationship problems, or did you just want to keep that private? Keeping it
1: private was definitely one aspect. There were elements of Chicago, don't get me wrong. There were elements of it. it. What probably happened was, when I look back at it now, is initially, you know, I went to Chicago, came back, accessed a bit of help, and through a lot of the questioning that came up, it turned out that Chicago wasn't fully the reason. It was other things that were unpicking. So perhaps breakdown from, you know, the relationship I had back in two thousand seventeen, I think whatever that one was, the one that I just mentioned. Um, so just lots of things where relationships haven't worked out or. That's basically what sort of came up. And I think, again, it was something that I kind of wanted to deal with on my own. There were friends that I spoke to about it and said that I was going through it. There were friends that I knew who I'd told that I was going through relationship troubles, shall we say, <laughs> work troubles, work pressures and stresses and all these things. So I've always been someone who's open about it and take on these opinions. But I think what was really good about the counselling was that it was someone who didn't know you, someone who didn't already have an opinion of you. And could hit you with really raw questions to get to know you, to get to know the problem. Whereas friends are very good because, to an extent, but they know the problem, and sometimes they have a bit of a bias towards someone mm. who's you know, done me wrong or something like that. So yeah, it was just getting that raw questioning and raw raw grounding.
0: You've spoken there about the previous relationships which caused you mental health difficulties. I want to talk about the present day, Thomas. Now, so who's the Thomas we meet now?
1: What you see is what you get. What you hear is what you get, probably. Someone who's very, very upbeat, someone who's very sociable still and incredibly grateful for what I've got. So certainly the last takings that I had from the counsellor within that time was to basically surround yourself with people who you trust and who you know. So I won't go into too many details, but the person that I was having the issues with, shall we say, was taking advantage of me and was not good for me, but I hadn't seen it at that time. What this councillor did was sort of show you who have you got. And that was sort of a huge reset moment for me, to be honest, because I realised that I had two really good flatmates at the time. One was an Indian banker for Goldman Sachs, and we got along really well. And other was an Italian real estate worker. We are now a couple and really, really good friends. We keep in touch. Then shortly after that, I met my now-fiancé Paige. And through that, we're both very sociable people, so we mix with lots of people. And I think it's something that I really value. It's just the mix of opinions, the mix of jobs. You know, I'll have people whose opinions I don't agree with. There'll be people's opinions who I think are correct, some who I think are absolutely wrong. But they're good to have. gives you that mixture. And just appreciating what other people go through. So we've got friends who work in the NHS, friends who work in the police, some who work for Amazon, some who work for sales and Audi, and recruitment and everything. And it just gives you that aspect of corners of society that, you wouldn't necessarily know about because of the nature of the work so definitely something I've always taken on board is just surrounding yourself with good people good voices keeping yourself busy which is what I do I'm always working Um, or if I'm not working I'm out somewhere meeting people and planning things and traveling love traveling at the moment I've been to 17 countries this year Just little city breaks taking the most of cheap Ryanair and Air travel And just really enjoying life because I think, again, COVID was a big reset moment too of just, right, life's too short. Don't know what's happening around the corner, so go and experience it. Go and see cultures. Go and see football games, taste different food and drink different beer and all these things. So, yeah, someone who's very optimistic about the future, someone who's incredibly grateful for who they've got around them, goes without saying fantastic fiancé that I've got and amazing friends and amazing colleagues that you've got around you.
0: Let's reflect now on your mental health journey, Thomas. So A, what has it taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to the Thomas who was sacrificing his weekends, evenings and holidays to graph for free in his dream of becoming a journalist. Perhaps the Thomas who had just received the bad news on his A-level results day or early results day, I should say. Or the Thomas who was in the midst of that difficult breakup, perhaps considering moving back to Aberdeen and packing it all in. What would you say to him knowing what you do now? keep going,
1: keep going. There's always things that you can do to take your mind off things. So whether that's throwing yourself into work to create better opportunities, workloads, network, teach yourself new skills. You know, I threw myself into sport, played hockey for you. I wasn't a great player at all. I I could do the bare minimum, but I would enjoy and have a good laugh. And as I say, it would always give me something to look forward to on a Saturday, something to look forward to on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And occasionally, you meet a group of friends that you wouldn't necessarily have done and you're going out to go watch a football game or you're going out to go and you know enjoy a box park or a bar somewhere. So that's what I always look back and I say, and I, you know, I, I tell most people as sort of mental health advice of friends who are going through tough issues is look how far you've come, look at the person who you were six weeks ago, even a month ago, then look back a year ago when you were at school. It's really difficult to picture when you're in those moments that you just touched on there of... Failing exams, relationship breakdowns, all those the moments was were really hard to look back and go, I could sack this all in and just, if I wanted to, I can go back home and sit in a room all day or I can pack my job in and can do this. Actually, you push through it, find alternatives, you become a stronger person for it. And I like the thing that I have done because failing the exams basically kick-started my work ethic. Relationship breakdowns taught me quite a bit about myself, how much I value people and teaching you that that sort of moment of sometimes things don't work out and that's okay, that sort of acceptance. And then to look look at a career, so to be sat in a room with Tamara Eccleston doing an interview like that in a world exclusive, to be sat on a stage collecting an award for a project, you know, and as I say, to be speaking to those people that really when you bring them that veil, they don't see you as a journalist, they don't see you as a headline grabber, they see you as a person. Then all those things are really Worth it to be honest and pushing through because you know your worth, you know your self value to other people not just to yourself as well I should say. But yeah the best advice I can ever give to someone is look at how far you've come, surround yourself with good people and sometimes put your head down and work. Stick to what you're good at, usually you're in a job, you've been employed for a reason, stick your head down and work that's good
0: distraction to have. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Thomas, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, if we have time. It is a general natter and a chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate?
1: Really good, thank you. Really, really good. Sleep well, was another good thing. Could probably eat better. Could probably cut back on the wines and cheese at night, but Mm -hmm. sometimes it's there to be celebrated and sometimes it's there to sort of enjoy the moment. So yeah, no, generally, really good, really good.
0: Excellent, mate. If you felt comfortable saying, what mental health conditions or issues, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life?
1: wouldn't say I live with any conditions. wouldn't say they affect me day-to-day life, but I'm aware of other people who have them, which again makes me sort of grateful for having a stable mind mindset, having stable mental health and appreciating people that you have around you
0: what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health?
1: Probably when I started losing my hair at 12 more so because my parents were more emotional than I was and I was probably trying to get my head around why they were and that sort of knock-on effect but I think again because it happened so young I wasn't really that fussed perhaps mm. if it had happened when I was 16 17 18 or going through uni age i I'd have been a bit more worried but doesn't bother me at all it's just who you are. Just get on with it
0: very fair mate tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health so who was it with what impact did it have and how do you look back on it did it feel like on the one hand a big moment or a big burden or weight of a lift off your shoulders or in the other did it feel like something very easy insignificant and normal to do
1: probably the one that sticks out was a counsellor that was a good weight off your shoulder because Obviously, there was a lot of negativity around this one person and uh, friends had obviously weighed in with their negativity and their opinions and, and everything around it. And all of a sudden, this one counselling with that lack of judgment, uh, yeah, it is that weight off your shoulder. I guess it's difficult to describe it other than that cliche. But then you feel more open talking to tell people about it, which hopefully then encourages them, if they're going through troubles, to go and talk to people or talk to me. So that's the reason why I decided to tell a few people afterwards. Probably even though why I'm still doing it now is hopefully if someone's listening to this and if they are going through a tough time where they know someone who is or perhaps their tough time hasn't come yet, then they know that there is help that is out there. The NHS is a fantastic service. I've you know fortunate that my company put me through a couple of I think, six sessions in the end, but six sessions that were totally, totally worthwhile.
0: What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet?
1: Probably not figure them all out yet, but definitely when I see graphic images on death, and that would
0: uh, trigger anyone. To be fair, mate, yeah.
1: <laughs> and see, the soul stampede was pretty harrowing. That one mm. sticks my mind. But even things like the COVID, watching that nurse say goodbye to a patient who she barely known. All these things that they can be pretty triggering, but again it's sort of realizing that it comes with a job.
0: And then conversely, what positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Talking to people,
1: without a doubt. Surrounding yourself with good people, good listeners who have your best interests at heart who will offer advice so I definitely say that's the best thing and it can just be a chat over a pint it can just be a chat over a coffee it might not even be my problems I might be just listening to them it's one thing that I've always equipped myself with is I'm a good listener it comes with a job and listening to points that people will ramble on in sentences but there'll be one point that you pick up on and that's the follow-up question shows that you're listening and it shows that you might be able to point them in a better way of advice
0: what is the best book, or as I call it, mental health bible you've read, your men's health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be.
1: Confess, I don't actually read many books. What about, about
0: a play, a podcast, TV yeah. show, anything like that?
1: i say podcasts. I love listening to Scottish football podcasts because it gives me a taste of home. Football! <laughs> yeah, so as, as much as obviously I live down here in London, and living in Aberdeen doesn't appeal to me too much. My heart is always in Scotland and incredibly proud Scottish football fan for my sins and everything. So it does always give me a, a reminder for home.
0: I think every football fan is Ali McCoy's to be honest, at the moment. So.
1: Oh, he's brilliant. He's
0: <laughs> it was the Germany game. He was like, look at Sula, the mark is ridiculous. He's two yards deeper.
1: He's just honest. I, love, on it. It. And I've, I I've, love it, man. Uh, Ali McCoyce is usually the topic of these things because of his connections when he used to be Rangers manager or used to be involved in the Scottish coaching setup or he used to be a player. All these footballers have got stories about him. If you remember, Gaza has amazing stories about the fishing and all that. Ali McCoist is that equivalent, of is, is Scotland's equivalent. The stories he has got, the pranks that he has pulled, he's just an incredibly sharp, witted person. Him and Gordon mm. Strachan, really, really good.
0: If there was a mantra in life, mate, that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why?
1: Um, hmm. Keep this shut and these open.
0: You're pointing at your oh, eyes sorry. and your head there. <laughs> your lips, sorry. <laughs>
1: My eyes. Keep these open. That shot. Uh, sometimes that can get you into trouble, <laughs> um, and not necessarily you. You can say things that you don't mean, or all that, which can make problems worse, and all that. That kind of
0: thing is what I mean. So that's yep, always I've it. definitely been burned by that before, so I can definitely attest to that. And <laughs> as a final question, mate, and this is a broad one, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if Most importantly, they want to do it.
1: I think it's getting better for generations. I'd like to think that kids that I'd have would certainly feel in a far more open space. And if you think back, you know, I go that thing of thinking back to where you were. You think back to how things were in the 80s and 90s. You hear some horror stories, like even still now. It's just a mixture of things of just, you know, society that's changing. You know, you go back to the 80s and it was difficult for people to be gay. It was difficult for people to be black, to have HIV. All these things that now, it's far more accepting. And you always think that was only a couple of years ago. So I think it's a bit of a generation thing. I think we keep having these discussions now so that in years to come, gradually, people feel more open, feel more comfortable talking and perhaps younger people who do it more often. All the generations might turn around and start talking about things. But the other thing that I will see is people process things in different ways. Some people Mm -hmm. do want to deal with it on their own. Some people don't want to talk. And that's totally fine but it's always worthwhile just keeping an eye on these people.
0: And on that note, Thomas McIntosh, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Great, thanks for having me. Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Thomas McIntosh for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. I'll put a link to where you can follow him on social media and watch his documentary on the Tamara Eccleston Diamond Heist on BBC iPlayer in the show notes. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying, give it a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing here at VENT and want to support us further, you can go to www.patreon.com slash VENT help UK or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a VENT t-shirt that is on our link tree that's linktr.ee slash vent we hope to check in with you again very soon and remember guys it is always okay to vent